All right, well, tonight we're moving into this topic of prophecy and tongues as we look at this chapter of Corinthians, chapter 14. It's a difficult passage in some ways to interpret, but it's also in other ways very simple. The message is very plain. Um, some of the debate obviously comes through centuries of different denominations or different Christians arguing about the extent of, of the abuses of gifts and the uses of gifts. And we're going to look at some of that today. But really, the big problem in chapter 14 uh, deals not uh, so much with the manifestation of spiritual gifts, but an unintelligible, disorganized, and confusing worship service because of the misuse of the spiritual gifts. So Paul doesn't, again, dissuade the spiritual gifts. He actually says desire them. And yet he's correcting the misuse of these spiritual gifts that are causing all kinds of disruption in uh, the service. And two of these gifts particular he's going to speak on tonight, and that is the, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. Now in five sections here in this chapter, well not the whole chapter, just to verse 24, there's five sections we'll see tonight where, where Paul makes the argument that prophecy is better and more beneficial than speaking in tongues. And so that's very plain. Like I said, a lot of people argue about things here and they think it's kind of hard to interpret what is being said, but the, the simple part on the surface that can easily be seen is that Paul is very adamant about saying, hey, there is a better gift. <laughs> there is one gift you should be longing for and uh, it is prophecy above tongues. That's plain. So let's notice this as we jump in here. Uh, verse 1. And we're going to read uh, a little bit here in um, chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, just to get started. It says, pursue love. Now, that's fitting because the last chapter we looked at was chapter 13, which was all about love last week, remember? And so now Paul reminds us that this is really what everything hinges on, everything that we do for God, every work we do, every bit of obedience of the law we, we do. It's all got to be based on love. So pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So again, those things Paul's very plain about. We need the spiritual gifts. Now, we talked about these earlier in chapter 12. Not all spiritual gifts are just these, these manifestations of sign gifts, like speaking in tongues or a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge or healing or miracles. Those are the extreme. But there are other gifts we talked about that are spiritual gifts. Preaching, giving, mercy, um, discernment. Uh, or organization, administration, all these other gifts that the church must have, and we can only really operate in those things by the Spirit as well. So desire spiritual gifts and earnestly pursue love. Now he says, especially, and here it is, especially that you may prophesy. So desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So there it is. There's that first section where Paul plainly shows the benefit of prophecy over this gift of speaking in tongues. And one of the hints he gives there is, again, that something is going on here with these tongues where they're unintelligible to the people sitting in the church. And, and, and so 
different, different than prophecy. They really don't help build anybody up. They just confuse. Now, I don't know if you ever grew up in, in a kind of a Pentecostal background or had any friends that were maybe Church of God or Pentecostal. Have you ever been to a service that was pretty exciting <laughs> in, a, in a way of, of a strange way? <laughs> so um, I'm just being honest because when, when I, I was at a few of those with my friends, and really left never knowing quite what was going on. And I was really convinced in my heart that the majority of people that were even involved didn't really know much that was going on that day. Um, and, and yet, I, I don't want to make fun of, and I don't want to make light of, so again, I apologize for, for that. My spirit is uh, a loving one. But Paul is also loving these folks. Paul also realizes gifts are real during this time, but even this time in in the church's history, 2,000 years ago, Paul is writing a corrective. Desire the gifts, yes. But there are some important ones. There's a, there's, a, there's a pecking order. There are some priorities. And prophecy should be the one that is first. Why? Like he said, because people know what you're saying. So immediately, again, he's saying, build up people with spiritual gifts, not yourself. Now, the first time we see tongues, there's, there's, there's something different here in 1 Corinthians because the first time we see tongues mentioned is back in the book of Acts. And I want us to take a little bit of time to kind of look at tongues uh, in the Bible because they're there. We can't just deny it and say, oh, there's no such thing as speaking in tongues. Well, the Bible is full of the examples, right? First time we see tongues is back in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So I'm going to read some of that to us tonight and see what was going on. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues." How did they do it? As the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven at that time, there in that region, right? And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So that word native there is that idea of dialect, right? Not just a language. They weren't just speaking their language. They were speaking like they were from their hometown with the same accent, right? I mean, this, they're like, how in the world is this happening? So there's no question that in the book of Acts, the gift of tongues is uh, it's, it's a known language on earth and that the apostles were given the ability to speak a language they had, they had never learned, right, previously. They had never known this language. It came upon them by the Holy Spirit's power, and they preached the gospel. They were, they were talking about the manifest works of God, the Bible says here on the, in the next verses. So what was that? That was, that was an evangelistic miracle. That was, that, was, that was a gift given for the purpose of evangelizing, getting the word of God out to as many people that Jesus Christ is the son of God and the savior of sinners. That was what was happening here. So legitimate language, earthly language, 
given to the apostles to speak. They, they never spoke it before. And we don't even know if they ever spoke it again, some of them. I mean, this again is God's choosing to move at that moment, giving them that gift for his purposes and for his glory. Now, by the time we get to 1 Corinthians, there seems to be a different use of tongues. There seems to be something else going on here. Because, because Paul is, is saying, man, there's confusion. And people are speaking, but there's nobody listening. It's a little different already, right? Don't you see the difference? I mean, in, in the book of Acts, in Jerusalem there, we have people listening. They're hearing something in their own language. It's tangible, right? It's understandable, legible. In the, in the book of 1 Corinthians, the, the criticism from Paul is, you're speaking a tongue, but nobody's hearing it. Nobody's understanding it. So we've got to understand that's, that's what's happening here. Now, and, I, and again, the, the reason we argue so much in, in 1 Corinthians 14 is because of this idea of a prayer language, because Paul talks about praying with the tongues of angels, praying with the tongues of men, as he did last week in 13. And then it comes in here to, to verse 14, talking about praying on your own and to, your, to yourself, your own spirit. And so people argue, is there a spiritual gift of speaking in tongues for myself? And um, I'm not going to answer that right now, but we're going to get back in here. We've got four other places here to talk about this. So here we go. Again, by the time we get to that 1 Corinthians 14, this gift of tongues is more focused on personal edification than it is on evangelistic or group edification of the whole church. It's about me personally. That's, that's already a problem. Okay, now let's notice verses 4 and 5 as he again shows the difference between prophecy and tongues. He says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself... But the one who prophesies builds up the church. So again, there's that idea. He, this theme keeps repeating five times in these 24 verses. He's going to keep reiterating this. The one speaking in tongues is building up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Again, the, the, the gist of what Paul's saying here, though we, un, we can get by his last statement about tongues, if somebody speaks in tongues, somebody better be interpreting so that people can get something out of it. That, that, you see the point? So his point is prophecy does that automatically. And, and so the main thrust here is building up the entire church, not just doing something for your own personal good or building up. And prophecy, that word there, when he says um, it's, it, when he said it's greater, right? The one who prophesies is greater. A, a better way of looking at that word is more beneficial. The one who prophesies is more beneficial to the church. That's what I mean. Not that they're greater, like, oh, man, look at me. I'm something else. That's already one of our problems in the book of Corinthians. People jealously and selfishly trying to build themselves up. Look at me. Look at me. Look at how I can do this and do that. And you can't do this. And I'm greater than you. I'm better than you. So that's not what it's about at all, Paul's saying. Our goal should be to love each other and to be beneficial to each other, build each other up. So again, prophecy is more beneficial than tongues for two reasons. Number one, it's intelligible. Prophecy is intelligible. You, you hear it and you understand it, and it builds up the entire church. So those are the two reasons. Now look at verses 6 through 12. He says, now brothers... If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some, some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? 
If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct tone notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an uh, indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue you utter, uh, if with your tongue you utter speech that is intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For if you will, uh, uh, for for you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world. And none is without meaning, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. There's so much good teaching here in this. I think even the charismatic churches that practice these things would do themselves a great benefit if they just read this. And realize there is, some, there is some emphasis that's misplaced. Because he says at the last there, it's okay to be eager for the manifestation of the Spirit. But that striving should be to build up the church. So, having said that, and again, there's a lot of examples here that he's using. Obviously, they had a battle call on the, on the bugle. You know what that means, right? If you're in military, wake up, correct? The, the call, reveille. And then, I guess if you're dead, they tell you, I say, you know that one? <laughs> There's calls, right? There's certain bugle sounds that mean something. And that's what Paul's trying to say. And if they play the wrong stuff, if they play strange notes out of, all out of whack, so to speak, Nobody knows what they're talking about. So the same with tongues. And he really hits that idea of language because he's saying there's, there's intelligible languages. There's no languages. But if I don't know what you're saying, then there's a problem. So obviously we know here in Corinthians that there was, there was no interpretation and these languages were not anything known to anybody. So it was totally distracting and not building up the church and only making the person that did it look mysteriously spiritual, right? Mysteriously spiritual. They were putting on some kind of Gnostic air, like, look, I've got a knowledge you guys don't have. I can do this. And Paul's saying that's not what it's about. Now, let's look at this as we continue. Verses 13 through 19. He says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And, and again, I, I don't understand all of this stuff that's going on here, but Paul is saying that he's experienced this, and he will say this later on about the fact that he speaks in tongues. But he's saying, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, meaning my mind is not really engaged in that. I am saying some stuff, the spirit's giving utterance for some reason, and yet it's not much for knowledge, right? It's more of a, some kind of a self-edifying emotional uplifting thing i don't understand it but that's what he's kind of saying here but he goes on to say for if i pray with my tongue uh, my, uh, for if i pray in a tongue my spirit prays but my mind is unfruitful what am i to do i will pray with my spirit but i will pray with my mind also so he's encouraging a discipline here a spiritual discipline for these people who are used to the emotional part of whatever that gift was but he's also reminding them, you've got to pray with your mind as well. You've got to engage the knowledge you have of who God is, what he has done, who Christ is, and 
and pray with your mind as well. Not just get caught off into an emotional trance and babble a bunch of words and be emotionally somehow fulfilled. That's not, that's not all we're supposed to do. And again, I don't understand, and, and, and there's a lot of interpretive uh, questions about all this and what this really is, but I'm just saying even with this gift operating at this time, there's no question Paul knows it's there and he actually participates in it. He's still saying it's not the main thing. There's something more to be desired. Prophecy, why? Because it builds everybody up. And we're going to continue to see what he says. Look, he goes on to say, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. What a powerful phrase that we need to grab in a lot of Christianity today. Because there are a lot of people praying or singing, I'm sorry, singing in the, quote, spirit of emotionalism. They're caught up into some kind of spirit of repetitive words, but they are not singing with their mind. And there is great value to singing with your mind because, again, we've got this Gnostic kind of spiritual kind of superficial idea that, that we don't have to really engage our minds as Christians. It's all about feelings. Do I feel happy? Do I feel motivated? Do I feel emotional? But Paul is plainly saying here that, yes, emotions play a part, but here's how they've got to connect. Our mind, our knowledge of who God is, as we sing about his glory and the truth of who he is, that truth, that wisdom, that knowledge from our minds engages our hearts. And then we rejoice emotionally. There's emotion, but the emotion doesn't come first. The knowledge has to come first. Man, I love Alistair Begg. Anybody hear Alistair Begg? I like what he said about these worship leaders that get up and the first thing they'll say is, how y'all feel? How y'all feel? He's like, good night. It's what, 9 o'clock in the morning, and you get up there and you ask me how I feel? He's like, don't ask me how I feel. I just kick the dog and yell at my wife and yell at my kids. He said, don't ask me how I feel. He said, ask me what I know. What do you know? We know that God is sovereign. <laughs> we know that Christ is the triumphal Savior. We, we know that by his blood, he has conquered all the enemies, all the, the demons, all the powers of this earth have been conquered and are under his authority. We know that in him we are the children of God. Now let's sing, <laughs> right? And as we sing, we're singing words that are verifying that truth in our minds and then our heart can engage and we can be emotional and we can raise our hands and we can, we can be excited, right? But Paul has put a great balance there for us. We sing with our spirit, but we also must sing with our minds. He says, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? <laughs> it's just all emotional gibberish. And even with or without tongues, I'm telling you, there's a lot of, quote, Christian songs that are nothing more than emotional gibberish. They're really not saying anything. And the real question is, how can a non-believer really get any truth out of that when, when, they, when they visit, other than just, just excitement? He says, for you may be giving thanks well enough. You may be emotional enough and really giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. He said, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So one of the, 
what an amazing thing Paul's doing here. What a balance here. I mean, he's, he's one minute saying you would think he'd be totally against this gift of tongues that, that is in operation during this time, no doubt. And then he comes back and says, wait a minute, guys, I speak in tongues more than all of you. <laughs> what? He said, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church. Do you, now, this is a, a big principle here. There's, there's a gift that Paul has. And he's already said that this gift, whatever this is, however this works, is praying with the tongues of angels or praying in my spirit. It's edifying. But here's where he brings this principle of there's some things that we can do as believers alone as we pray or as we worship that we really don't want to do when we come together because it's not edifying everybody. He said, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, in the assembly, in the gathered, visible assembly of believers, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So I love how Paul writes here. He just, he, he, he's been cyclically, you know, in cycles, three times now making these points, right? Why, why prophecy is better than tongues. And now he brings it to this crescendo, basically. And says, yes, tongues is something, yes, but I would rather speak five words with my mind, knowledge, truth about who Christ is and what he's done for us, than I would 10,000 words in a tongue that nobody understands. Now let's notice verses 20 through 25 as we close this section, and I'm going to make an application. He says, brothers, do, do not be children in your thinking. And that again is the problem first in, in, in Corinth in general. There, there are factions. People are having favorite teachers. Like, that's my favorite teacher. No, this is the better teacher. No, yeah, yeah, Paul's the best. Silas is Apollos, whatever. They're babies. It's all about them. And this spiritual gift thing shows it as well. They're abusing the gifts because they're all about themselves. Look what I can do, and it makes me feel good, so I'm going to do this. What about the body? I don't care about them. Let them find their own gift. That's kind of what he's saying here. So he says, finally, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So do not be naive spiritually or taken in by these things. You should be naive to evil. Yeah, do, don't, don't be knowledgeable about evil. But in your thinking of spiritual things, be mature, is what he's saying. In the law, it is written. And he's going to quote Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12 here. My people, or I'm sorry, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people and even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, that's an important prophecy that sets up this idea of where I'm going and where Paul was going, I believe, with the gift of tongues and why prophecy was so much better than the gift of tongues. Tongues is something. God used them in, throughout the history of the church, we see. But this Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 28 says, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And it happened. <laughs> We saw tongues being used to speak to foreigners, the gospel of Christ. But even then, even the prophecy back in Isaiah said this, and even then, they will not listen to me. And even then, they don't listen. So as an evangelistic 
sign or gift. Tongues is meant for that, but it can be ineffective, he's saying. Look what he goes on to say. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. So, I, I, and again, this is those interpretive difficulties to see what, what's he mean by this. We understand to the extent where he says tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. I think that goes right back to Acts chapter 2, where the gift of tongues was used strictly for unbelievers to hear the gospel. But even then, some of them didn't listen. A lot of them looked at him and said, ah, oh, they're drunk. Ah, oh, this is crazy. Right? While prophecy, here's the main point he's saying. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. And I think this, the thrust of this, as you'll see in a moment why I think this, the idea of prophecy is a gift for believers and how we make believers. Um, I'm gonna, I'll show you what I mean by that. But, the, but it's the prophecy that builds up believers, and it's by preaching what has made our faith, right? That's what prophecy is, prophesying, speaking forth the word of God. We're going to talk about this in just a moment here, speaking forth God's word. As we come to church and we open the Bible and we speak forth the word of God, we believers, man, that's great, right? But Paul's going to say here in a moment that even the unbelievers, because of prophecy, are going to get something. They're going to hear and say, oh, that's the gospel. Look what he says. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, an outsider or unbelievers enter, uh, if outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? So again, you come to a church, you're a non-believer, you're in a, you're in a church where they're all, you know, speaking in tongues. Again, a, a kind of gibberish, along with a jabberish, jibber-jabber, that's what you got. They're going to say, wait a minute, I'm not getting much. I'm not getting anything. Maybe I'm getting nervous, Whatever. But, Paul says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Man, that's glorious. I, I love this passage because it shows the supremacy of preaching. Of course, I'm going to take it that way because I'm a preacher. But it is. He's saying the tongues and the emotional gifts and all the singing and the spirit and all those things, that's great. But the thing that's going to convict a lost soul when they hear it is the word of God. And they will ultimately, by his grace, fall on their face and acknowledge him as God. That's, that's what he's saying here. That person will worship God and declare God is among them. There's something going on here. I think that's important for us to understand, too, what church is about. Church is not about trying to meet the lost person where they're at. We don't want them to be where they're at. We want them to be where God wants them to be. <laughs> that's redeemed by the grace of, 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 of God and growing in his, his image. So what is the church? Again, the church primarily is a gathering of believers, those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, those who understand the prophetic message of what the gospel is. And we come together and we speak forth those truths in our songs, in our prayers, in our liturgy, and in our preaching. And you know what? 
they will be uncomfortable. I like, I think it was John MacArthur said that when the lost come to our church, they should be welcomed and they should be loved and they should be uncomfortable. And it's just the way it should be. Why? Because we're doing things that are uncomfortable to people who don't understand what they are yet. We're hearing, they're hearing, hearing things. But at least they're hearing things. You see the point? That's what Paul's trying to say. They're not uncomfortable because we're jumping from the rafters and speaking things they never understood and slaying each other in the spirit and all that stuff. They're uncomfortable because of the truth they're confronted with. And they may be uncomfortable with the style, or they may be uncomfortable even with the songs we're singing, because they're not, they should not be the same kind of songs that they're used to hearing. They should not be a love song to God, basically, that people can, can get right into it. Oh, yeah, this makes sense. They should be truth that confronts them and, and makes them uncomfortable in their sin and in their present state. And by the grace of God and the Spirit, begin to long for a better state, a state of forgiveness in Christ. So, Paul establishes that prophecy is to be preferred over tongues, but what is prophecy? So, this is what I want to end with a little bit, just to talk about prophecy, because this is another question. Well, I know we can jump on the idea of our tongues relevant for today and have tongues passed away, um, and I think even if, if Paul was saying 2,000 years ago that tongues were irrelevant and that, as he said in chapter 13, ultimately all the gifts are going to pass away and there's really no chronological order as to which gifts would start passing away first, but I would just, you know, wager to say that if 2,000 years ago Paul was already saying tongues is the least, I think that by now we can pretty much rest assured they're still not very valuable in the church. But prophecy, he said, was valuable. So that's what I want to focus on. What do we do with prophecy? What is it? Does it still exist today? In the same way it did in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now we know it's in the Old Testament. We see prophets all over the place. Walking around, saying, thus says the Lord. We see prophets everywhere. They're, they're climbing out of whales' bellies. They're, 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 they're laying naked prophesying. Like we, we see them all over. They've got girdles and making different... Uh, signs and I mean it's all over it's crazy what we see in the Old Testament with prophets but there's there's prophets in the New Testament we just saw it in the book of Acts we just saw it here in the book of Corinthians now remember in chapter 13 Paul lets us know that all the gifts are passing away like I said and we do not have an exact timeline of which gifts would pass away and in what order so we don't know that and evangelicalism over the past hundred years have been, or several hundred years have been divided on this, right? We know that. <laughs> so, well, Greg, you're a big help. Yeah, I know, no help at all, right? And we're not going to solve it tonight either, by the way. We're not going to have the, the one golden bullet that you're going to leave here and you're going to convert every person that thinks what they're doing is right or whatever. There's good men on both sides of this, by the way. There's good people, good brothers and sisters that truly are born again on both sides. So I want to say that too. We're not trying to demonize, oh, if you go to a charismatic church. No, I've got many charismatic friends. There's, there's good brothers on each side. Now, it, it falls down to this word. There's some words we can use. There's always phrases, right? Labels and things, which don't mean a lot, but they help us distinguish. So you've got a word called continuationism. Then you've got a word called cessationism. 
And you've heard of cessation. I bet you know that one. If anybody's ever smoked, you've heard of a cessation program, right? Cease, to stop something. Uh, smoke cessation, right? So cessationism, obviously, when you apply it to tongues or other gifts, would be that we think those have stopped. They've, we're cessationists, right? We think those gifts have ended with the apostles. Then you have another group called the continuationists, which that speaks for itself, right? <laughs> a continuationist believes that all the gifts are in a continuation, right? Now there's, like I said, great guys on both sides. On the continuation side, the continuationist would be guys like Sam Storms and John Piper and Wayne Grudem. These are all great men, great theologians, great brothers that we all love. Then you got cessationists, like John MacArthur, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul. And we could go on on both sides of those. But, but what I'm saying, I, I list enough that, uh, of guys that I know we all have read, guys that we may have sat in auditoriums and watched and heard preach and been blessed by. They're our brothers in Christ. And yet they're on two different sides here. So I say that to say that really at the bottom line of this, it's a non-essential when it comes to our fellowship in Christ, okay? Okay, I'm going to hurry. Don't worry, here we go. The essential you're saying right now is, hurry up, it's getting close to eight. I know. You say, where are you at, Greg? Where's your list? Where's your name in this list? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, here it is. My position is what I would call a nuanced cessationist. I'm a nuanced cessationist. I'll explain kind of what I mean by that and how that applies to this text. So let's, let's do that by looking at prophecy real quick. What is prophecy in the Old and New Testaments? Here's the definition of prophecy in the Old and New Testaments. Here's what we were seeing done in the Bible with the gift of prophecy. Prophecy is receiving a direct, spontaneous, and authoritative revelation from God and then speaking that to someone. That's what prophecy is. And it's important that we get that definition. And this is what we saw happening in the Old and New Testaments. People were given a spontaneous, direct revelation from God right to them, right there. God has given me a revelation direct, and now I am going to speak it to you. And that's authoritative. Now, there's already some problems with with all that. And we'll talk about it in just a second. (laughs) And there are some similarities with that and preaching. I think I've already said this in a few of our sermons, but prophesying, which is ultimately speaking forth that word that you received, right? You, but the way you received it is what's different, but, but you're still speaking forth a word of God. So Samuel in the Old Testament received a word from God and he spoke it. Preachers speak forth the word of God. There's some similarities, right? Pastors speak forth the authoritative revelation of God to people. But there's a difference. I believe that the pastoral preaching ministry has supplanted and replaced the prophetic ministry. Okay, so here's why. All right, three reasons. (laughs) Um, I like what Tom Schreiner says, and and some of these are based on, on what he said, but... But again, I want to make that clear. The idea of prophecy. And again, what is prophecy? If somebody's saying I'm a prophet, what are they telling you? They're telling you that God has given me a direct revelation. God's speaking to me and me only. And it's a direct revelation. It's spontaneous, came out of nowhere. And now I'm going to speak that to you. 
and you're expected to take that as authoritative. Now, does anybody see a little problem with that, with the sinfulness of man's heart and where that could go and where that has gone? That's why I believe that the pastoral preaching ministry, the ministry of preaching the Word of God, has supplanted and replaced the prophetic ministry in the church. So here's three reasons. We can look at this real quick. Why? Why I believe that. Number one, God has spoken to us in the last days finally and definitively in his son, Jesus Christ. So Hebrews 1 helps us with this. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what it says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So that's a, that was a legitimate way to receive God's word. It was the only way, right? The Bible we have today is the result of God speaking direct revelation to man, and they speak that word forth, and they wrote that word down. So we understand that that's exactly what God did long ago. In many ways, and many times in the past, he spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. What that is telling us is that the prophets, every, every word that they were speaking, every message they received from God, everything that they were told to tell people culminates in Jesus Christ. He is the final word. <laughs> he is the completion of all prophetic utterance. That's what it's saying here. I love this. So that's number, number one. Number two. The foundation has been laid once for all time in the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. So the foundation in the church has been laid once for all in the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. It's already done. That's a past tense thing, by the way. The ministry of the apostle in the New Testament and the prophets is complete, is what it's saying. And here's, here's, here's where we see this. Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. So then you are no longer strangers and alien, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is who we are in Christ, right? We're, we're now members of the household of God. What is the household or church of God? It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. So again, th this is beautiful because it's telling us that uh, what Ephesians is telling us is that Christ is the cornerstone. Again, it's, it's back to what Hebrews said. He's the main focus of this building, but the foundation that, uh, that's built upon him, the cornerstone, was laid by the apostles and prophets, those gifts given to the early church in the New Testament era. So yes, during the New Testament, as it was being written, God was still directly speaking to prophets, and they were still speaking forth the word of God and writing out the word of God. But that's a past tense thing. That, that foundation has been laid by the apostles and the prophets. And then number three, that faith that was laid, that foundation that was laid, has been handed down once for all time to the church. And that's what Jude chapter 3, Jude, Jude, Jude chapter 1, the only one, Jude verse 3 says, look what it says. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about the common, our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith 
that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jewish language here is he's not saying we're in some progressive religion that we're waiting to get some new revelation from God so we can get new marching orders to know what we need to start doing different. No, Jewish language is, hey, there has been a faith that has been once for all laid down, finished, complete, once for all laid down and delivered to the saints. And we as the church are to contend for that faith. We contend for that faith. What does that mean? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. Wait a minute. Hold on. Let me quote Tom Schreiner here because I, lo- I love this quote. He says, the completion of Revelation in the New Testament was final. And, and by the way, that's what was going on with, with Revelation speaking to a person directly, right? That's direct revelation from God. But in the New Testament, that was all final. When the New Testament was complete, that revelation from God is final because the climactic fulfillment of redemptive history was accomplished in the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What else can there be? (laughs) You see, is kind of what he's saying there. We don't have any new revelation because the final and definitive revelation has been given in Jesus Christ. And that's what Hebrews was telling us. So I don't need to wait and say, well, God, what else is there? I want to hear another word from you. Just tell me. Just tell me. So I can have a special revelation. No. He's already given his revelation. It's the Bible. So, so, So how do we know that? Because then Paul now tells Timothy, as we see this progression through the church, and as Paul is beginning to write these pastoral epistles, realizing that these gifts are fading away, as he says in Corinthians, realizing that even his office of apostle is fading away, being replaced by elders and deacons and teachers in in the church, he tells Timothy, preach the word. Isn't that glorious? 2 Timothy 2, verse 4, he says, I charge you in the presence of God, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He did not say, Timothy, go onto a mountain, get alone with God so you can receive some new revelation from him and then take that to the people. No, he said, it's already been established, Timothy. Your job as a pastor is to preach the word. Preach the word that God has sovereignly given us. Because it's totally sufficient to make us complete. It's totally sufficient to cause us to grow in Christ. It's sufficient. That's what sola scriptura was all about. Again, this idea, this is why I have a hard time with some of my reformed brothers who are still kind of in that idea of, of the idea that prophecy still exists and we can receive some new, new word. That idea of a, a human being today receiving a spontaneous direct revelation from God undercuts the principle of sola scriptura. Is the Bible the final say of what God has for us that culminating in in the message of who Christ is and what he accomplished? There's more than that? There's not. Because 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tell us all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for some good works here and there. No, 
for every good work. There is nothing that we can do for God. There is no new knowledge that we need. There is no new correction that we need. There is no new training in righteousness that we need that doesn't come from the pages of the book that God has sovereignly protected and preserved for us. And there's wisdom in that. I've said this many times, but when Charlie comes to me and says, God gave me a direct revelation last night that you're supposed to do whatever, I have a protection, right? I can say, wait a minute, the Bible says this. It doesn't say that I'm supposed to go out and kill a hundred, take a hundred foreskins of the Philistines and bring them to you or whatever. You know, I'm just saying, whatever, whatever you can say. I can say, that's not what God says, right? I'm not saved by doing that. I'm saved through Christ. So that's the example, right? This is how the Bible and Soto Scriptura is the great protective. We measure everything by that. Every word that somebody says is from God, we take it to the Bible. Now, I want to close with this. However, this does not mean that we don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Again, I think a lot of, um, what did I call myself, a, a cautious cessationist or a nuanced cessationist. The reason I say that is I, I believe that God is sovereign and can still do what he wants with his, with his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit can still do things. If there's a missionary on the field somewhere, I, I, I mean, I've heard stories like this. I've never experienced it. But if there's somebody trying to witness and they don't know the language, I, I, I believe God, if he wanted to, could still give a language to somebody, they could speak it. If, if again, God wants to. But does he do that? That's, the, that's what Paul's trying to say. Do we see that happening? And Paul's saying, we're actually seeing less of that, he's telling the Corinthians. We're seeing less and less of that. And what we need to do is be looking at prophecy. And, and his idea is there's a progression there because prophecy right now is speaking what God says. And Paul knows that, that one day that will be complete and canonized in Scripture. And that's what we preach, he tells Timothy. That faith, which is now handed to the church. So again, I have my, my doubts. And I know I say that, but here's what I mean. God can still heal. He does. We pray for healing. We still pray that God miraculously heal, heals people. So do we believe in healing? Yes. Do we believe in miracles? That God supernaturally provides for our needs? Yes. And so that's what I'm trying to say. Cessationism, or even leaning that way, saying that many of these sign gifts have, are no longer necessary or even relevant in the church, doesn't mean that we do not rely on and need the Holy Spirit. We do need the illumination and spiritual discernment of the Holy Spirit to help us clearly interpret and apply the Word of God in our lives every day. So we need to pray to be filled with the Spirit of God, to rely on Him, to, to ask Him to show us the Scriptures, to teach us, because that's why He's here, to lead us into all truth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth of who You are and who we are, and that brings us to the truth of who Christ is. He is the one mediator between God and man, the only one who can bring us securely and safely to you. So, Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray, Father, that we will, by your words tonight, be even more encouraged to put our trust and faith in your word that is forever settled in heaven. So, Father, we pray now that you will be glorified as you build us up in Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.